Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Two Daves and a Doc. And today we are joined by the esteemed Dr. Carly York from North Carolina, who also has amazing pictures of animals on her Twitter constantly, which I find personally very, very fascinating. So, Dr. York, welcome to our show. Thank you. If you could give us a brief introduction to who you are, where you're from, what you do around this joint, and uh, we'll jump right into the rest of the show. Sure. I am an animal physiologist and a biology professor at Lenore Rhine University. Um, this is a small liberal arts school in the mountains of North Carolina, and I teach non-majors biology. I teach uh, vertebrate zoology and animal physiology. I just started teaching some science communication courses as well here. That's awesome. How did you get into biology? What's, what's the fascination there? Um, I have kind of a, a winding path that landed me here. So I, um, I used to ride horses competitively and I did so all through college. Um, when I was a college student, I, I should have been a biology major, but I was intimidated by it. Um, in most universities, when you go in with a biology major, you need to declare it right away and start some hefty coursework your first semester, and there's like no deviating from that path. And I was really into my sports at the time. I wasn't quite ready to commit in that way. Um, so I was an exercise physiology major. Um, I was always interested in applying the physiology to animals, though. Like I wanted to know how these same principles worked with horses. Uh, so there was always that cohesive thought. I just wasn't quite on the mark with how to get there. And I got to my junior year and realized I messed up and I probably should have been a biology major, but but that's too late to change your major. So I, I just went ahead and graduated. Um, I took a year off and I worked at the North Carolina Zoo and took some basic biology classes and applied for master's programs. Um, and I had no idea like how to apply to graduate school. I did it all wrong, but I was lucky to have a university that said, okay, you seem good enough. And I ended up going to Western Kentucky University and studied um, equine social behavior and stress endocrinology. So I was looking at how stressed out they were based on where they were in dominance hierarchies. Um, it was really cool research. I sat out in a field for a whole summer and I watched horses and I ran out and collected poop from them because that's how I, I measured the stress. Um, and while I was working on my master's in Kentucky, we had to take courses and I took a marine biology course, mostly because there was limited courses available. Um, I'm not a beach person, not a boat person. I uh, wasn't particularly excited about this class. Um, and all the graduate students had to teach a lecture just as part of the course. And I ended up teaching a lecture on cephalopods, which is the group of animals that include squid and octopus and cuttlefish. Um, and I totally fell in love with these animals. And I decided that I wanted to do doctoral work and I wanted to study squid. So I... Um, finished my master's, applied to programs. I was accepted at Old Dominion University. Uh, I spent five years out on a boat catching squid and doing behavior uh, research and sensory physiology research on those animals. So yeah, that was a windy path all through the graduate program. Um, 
I ended up taking this job after I graduated and now I study frogs. So for a biologist, I've had a lot of different organisms that I've ended up working with, but it's been really cool. So humans to horses to to squids to frogs. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I also working with the North Carolina Zoo right now on a chimpanzee project and an elephant project too. So all over the place. Multidisciplinary biologist. Yeah. Multi-species and multidisciplinary biologist. Throw a little poop in the middle of that and you, you got totally. you got you got it made. Yeah. It's, That's a vital part of biology. Yeah. Yeah. No biology if it's not poop. No, exactly, that. exactly. So squids in particular. So before we started this, I just let you know I watched your great ped ed video on squids which was amazing by the way if people listening have not seen it go and check it out it's how squids outsmart their predators right yeah yeah that, that video is essentially four animal physiology papers boiled down into five minute story about squid <laughs> it's excellent like that's to, to me that's the way science should be easily understandable and you think about an onboarding process, I'd say a surprising amount of people will watch your video and then probably be led to those four individual papers if they request more information, like a soft onboarding for science. So you mentioned now you're teaching science engagement and the outreach in particular. What developed that passion in you for doing that? You know, did that develop previously? Did that develop during your studies? Or was that just something you were always kind of passionate about and identified the need for? Yeah, this is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. You know, sometimes life happens and you don't really notice something has happened until you're a few years down the road. And I'm at that point now where I realize that something has happened and I'm now really passionate about communicating science to non-science folks. And um, I've been teaching non-majors biology for um, about four years now, uh, multiple sections every semester. And I... I love teaching the non-majors. It feels like this really special opportunity to bring them into a world that they otherwise get really little exposure to. And they often come in not particularly excited to be there. And it's a fun challenge to, to try and get them to have a change of heart while they're in my classroom to at least appreciate, um, to appreciate the beauty of biology. So I've been doing that for about four years. Um, making that TED Ed was another moment where um, that was a fantastic exercise in taking this really dense science work that I've done, like you know, five years of research and boil it down to, to five minutes. That is a tough thing to do and to tell a story in a way that'll actually engage an audience of all different ages and education. Um, so I was thinking about how to communicate science and how to tell a science story for a while now, but it really wasn't until this past year that I became involved in the science communication community, really. Um, I, so it's a kind of a funny, weird story. Sometimes strange things just happen and it sends you down a path, but I was home um, visiting my parents in Washington, D.C. last fall, and I had been teaching my vertebrate zoology course, and I really didn't like how it was going. It felt too 
textbooky. They're just like, there wasn't any zazz to it. I didn't feel like I was telling the big story very well. Um, and it was home in DC and the Smithsonian Natural History Museum had just revamped their dinosaur exhibit. So I wanted to go see it. And we we're walking through this hall of vertebrates. And I was just like, holy cow, this is my vertebrate zoology course in a museum exhibit. How do I take this really cool interactive exhibit and like translate it into the classroom? And so I had this like thought in my head of how do I do this? And I was home and I was bored and I pulled up Instagram, which I like barely used. And I was scrolling through and I noticed that this friend of mine who had done squid research with had just done this improv show up in New York City uh, with a group of like science communicators that do a comedy show. And I clicked on one of the guys who, who hosts the show. Um, his name's Dustin Growick and he does a ton of science communication stuff and he's a museum educator. So I was just like, wow, I was just thinking about this question of museums and the classroom. And I wonder if he would be a helpful person to just talk to about this. So um, I got in touch with him. We had a long phone call talking about all of this. And while I was on the phone with him, he said, are you on Twitter? And I, I said, no, I'm not really that into social media. He was like, you need to get it on Twitter. And so I did. And it has been the coolest springboard to get me involved with this science communication community. Um, I've done a bunch of YouTube engagements, um, podcasts. I've been working with the Science Channel now on one of their shows. So suddenly I am really working in this field of how to communicate science to non-scientists. And I'm thinking a lot about it all the time, trying to be really philosophical. And now that I'm actually teaching it as a formal course for the first time this semester, trying to figure out how not only to communicate science to non-scientists, but now how do I even back that up and tell my, my growing scientists how to engage in this field as well? Yeah, super kind of important. And like, I, I, my background is engineering. And I often say sometimes engineers aren't taught how to effectively communicate with each other, oh, never no. mind <laughs> external individuals. And it is so vital and it's so important. And like, anything different catches people's attention. So you mentioned that your Hall of Invertebrates, I was lucky enough, I absolutely adore the Natural History Museum in London. You know, it's, you go in and the big statue of Darwin on his chair, it's amazing. We went in there. But I was lucky enough last year to do a night at the museum when we camped under the blue whale overnight in the Natural History Museum. And to see the amount of people and the amount of people talk about, oh, I've never been in this museum before, but here I am staying overnight and they're exploring the exhibits and going to talks and talking to the curators. It's like, that's to me how science should be. Like, you know, very, very appealing. And it doesn't have to be the big brick wall of intimidation knock down those walls and bring people in and let them experience it with you. It's, it's great. I love it. I'd love to keep doing it. It's excellent. I want to see more squid videos. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Uh, growing up. I mean, I used to go to the Chicago field museum. So my, my grandparents lived in outside of Chicago and so natural history museum in Chicago. I mean, those are, I still remember it. I went back as an adult and I was like walking through there going, 
all right it's a, it's a little disneyland small world now i can understand where these things come from i i, I get the method behind the madness but that fascination for like here's living history here's living you know like this is the way it was at one point and trying to understand that and process that through my you know feeble you know feeble brain so to speak um yeah it's amazing you know and and, and to your point about social media and all that kind of fun stuff. I mean, I work in market messaging, right? So my day job is to figure out how to take very complex things and disseminate them out so they're understandable. So, and, and like Colin and like David, you know, stepping into a very dense area of academia, right? And then trying to figure out ways to do that, yeah. you know, communicate those ideals and communicate the you know, concepts behind it. And it's just so important. Those Instagram moments, as we like to call them, right? Where you're capturing the intent in, 30 seconds when I mean, you do some startup mentoring as well, where you're, you're saying, how can you communicate your idea in 90 seconds? You know, you have 90 seconds to give three major points, three major criteria of why this stuff matters. See, I didn't curse this time. Good, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but to get that out there. So on that point, David, as well, uh, like David Attenborough, another Dave to add to the mix, uh, has done an amazing job. I just literally looked up here as we were talking his Instagram, and he's got 6.2 million followers. I think he's only on it less than a year, uh, maybe months even. And, and what he's done to kind of help with that communication, and not only to focus on the science, but also to focus on where we kind of intersect with it and the impact that we can have on science as well, uh, from being unaware and from, from being uh, mindful of, of where we are within it. And I'm just wondering, from, from your side, have you seen any interesting kind of stories or even anecdotal pieces that have come out of, of your communication uh, stories, Carly, where people have, you know, engaged with the content that you've put out, uh, similar to what, what uh, David Attenborough is doing, but and, and actually have had moments where they went, oh, actually, like, this is where it fits into my life, or this is where I've seen it uh, impactful, or you've met, met them think a different way than that maybe they've done before. It'd be interesting to hear if you've got any stories like that for us. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have any direct ones from social media, or at least if it's happened, I, I don't know about it. Um, but certainly in the classroom, um, for my non-majors biology, the way that I've decided to get the objectives in there, which are, the objectives are super dry, like, you know, learn the processes of life, the biochemical analyses and blah, and, you know, evolution and natural selection, and nothing that any non-major would look at and get excited about. Um, so I've taken those objectives and I've rolled them into five different modules where we do conservation of species, uh, love and sex, GMOs, superbugs, and climate change. And I'm able to fold the same information in, but in a way that is actually relevant to these students' lives. Like these are things that they should all know something about moving forward as as grown-ups so you know conservation of species is all about biodiversity um and conservation obviously and then we get to love and sex and you start to get in things like sexual selection and different sensory cues um superbugs is just a trojan horse for evolution gmos is genetics and climate change is all kinds of different biochemical processes and it gives us an opportunity to talk about things that they're actually hearing about that they want to know about and not just cellular processes and photosynthesis you know um, so in that regard 
I've heard really positive feedback from students in that um, they actually feel like science is relevant to them in a way that they didn't realize that it was. Like that's it, that's it. Like I, I love that idea as well. And like, I've tried to do similar in work I've done in the past. Have you found any resistance from your field or maybe the institution of academia, let's say, resistance to that? I've heard people say, oh, it's, 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 um, you know, it's demoting the importance of this work or it's like informalizing it and it's taking it away from it. Have you found any resistance to that in general in the work you do or in the field as a whole? Yeah, a little bit. Um, and I'm, there, there's certainly resistance to any kind of different idea in academia, right? Like these courses have been mostly taught the same way for decades. And um, there's reasons. And I understand in like a, a class that is targeted towards biology majors, there is information that they need to have in order to grow and go on to the next class. Um, when we're talking about non-majors, um, the first year that I taught this course, I did it in a really traditional format um, and it felt really unsatisfying. And I had to just sit back and think about why this course even exists and what, what my objectives really were, even if they weren't the objectives in the course catalog, like what did I need to get out of teaching this course? Um, so when I started to do this major shift, I, I was excited about it and I was talking to colleagues about it and I learned pretty quickly that I should talk less about what I do in the classroom because when you do something that's very different than what everybody else is doing, you're gonna get pushed back. And maybe it's because they have really good ideas about what you want to do, but it's also um, a little, it's a pushback against the traditional mode. And if other people are tied to that traditional mode, I think it pings on people's insecurities when you start to do something that looks very, very different. Um, I'm lucky that my institution as a whole really supports innovative teaching. In fact, I was given a really nice stipend to just take this class and strip it down completely and and redo it in this module format. Um, so yeah, there is that. And it's going to be really interesting in teaching the science communication course because it's all juniors and senior biology majors. So we have spent the past few years kind of putting some scaffolding on them to make them these rigid little scientists <laughs> essentially is, it's what we end up making them, whether we mean to or not. Um, and I don't know if the people who are drawn to this field already kind of have personalities that tend to lend themselves to this. But when, when you're talking about science communication and how you convey this information to the public, you have to strip away some of that rigidity and you have to figure out how to, um, kind of like how to human again how to be <laughs> how to be a real person again <laughs> how to be a real person again and try and remember the kind of language that normal people use and like like most people don't say i really like that person's phenotype right like 
that's something I would actually say to a colleague. <laughs> but <laughs> it's like a weird thing to say. And to remember what words are like science words and how do you get that same message across without using that language or at least um, giving people an understanding of that language that you're using yeah. at the same time. An element of translation. So I know something that like, David and myself were doing an awful lot of work in innovation, and we spend most of our time doing one of two things, translating complex topics into very simple words, or not saying anything, as you mentioned, and not letting other people do their work. So I've found like the best science communicators, and David Attenborough is one as well. Never mind the fact I will listen to him say anything about anything. <laughs> I, think, on I end. think we all would. <laughs> Just exactly. That's he has that voice, but he translates and he translates extremely well. So like, I know the two guys doing their PhD process and that I did it as well. An element of translation is not included in most PhD courses or academic courses. It's very rigid. There's, I don't know of a PhD program that encourages or has modules on science communication or translation of ideas. So the element of translation, people want to understand. It'd be like if I start explaining complex engineering processes in German or English, it makes no difference because nobody can understand them either way. It needs to be normalized. And that's kind of, that's the, that's what I get from you. And that you're going to try and add this little normalization element to your students while, you know, to try and temper the creation of them into the little scientist in the box, make them real people as well. Yeah, it's too bad that that um, idea of translation is also described as dumbing down. Yeah. because it's not dumbing down it's code switching it's yeah. using different language to get the same information across and um I, a lot of scientists who aren't interested in communicating their work to the general public they do look down on this shifting away from the really specific science language um and that's so unfortunate and detrimental to the field as a whole because again it's 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 a different language it's not a worse language it's one you need training in and yeah, yeah. we're shutting down all kinds of doors if we can't code switch yeah my best a, reference please. for that sorry david go on ahead okay um i just wanted to, to maybe jump in here on, on this one Connor, because i think you might have some thoughts on this one as well um, where we've seen this very kind of, I suppose, a parallel challenge um, is I, I work a lot within the, with people with mild to moderate intellectual disabilities, and they're going through courses They may not be science related, it could be whatever it might be to get into employment, to progress into further education or whatever it is. And a lot of even in, whether it's from the government, the information that we receive, you know, whether it's about perhaps a virus or in just general, how do you claim you hurt your money for a week, that type of thing, um, has almost been complicated to a point where it's illegible for so many people. People just cannot comprehend what it means. And even when we look at it and we go through it and we don't have some of the challenges that other people have, it, it's hard to kind of really figure out what exactly it is that people are trying to say. So I think in a, in a way it's almost, I, I don't know, it's, there's a snobbery or some type of like class element to language and i think that we could learn a lot from the sector the disability sector where they've been fighting to simplify language um, to not because it's it's dumbing down in any means but it's because it makes it easier for everybody 
you know, and that is that is where I think, you know, we need to in universities, whether it's science, engineering, or across the board, need to go and and as teachers, because all of us are have have been in a classroom at some stage in, in our lives, you know, it's our responsibility too. Um, I, I know there's been plenty of times where I've talked about something and then I've looked up and everybody's eyes have glazed over. <laughs> and you just don't, you, you, you kind of forget, you kind of become, like you mentioned, ivory tower, you, you, you almost end up on that without realizing at times. So I think it's good for uh, people to maybe flag that. But yeah, sorry, Colin, I interrupted you on that one. Um, no, it was a good point. I was going to say, like, to me, the best example of what both of you have talked about is Richard Feynman, famous physicist from his time in Cornell. The Feynman physics lectures are foundational lectures in physics these days. But Richard Feynman always said if he cannot explain a complex subject to a normal individual, it's his problem, not their problem. He does not understand it well enough to convey it in means that everyone and like that's the reference. Nobody will doubt Richard Feynman doesn't understand physics. You know, he main core contributor to the Manhattan Project. He knows what he's doing. He took it as his problem. If he couldn't explain it, it was his problem. That's what I would like to see in science. If you can explain it to anybody, you really know your topic. And I wonder, Carly, have you experienced the opposite from other people? Maybe the people that have this resistance. I've found that an awful lot of people that maybe don't understand it as well as they present will hide behind formality just to get out of the uncomfortable situation of having to try and explain something they don't understand. Oh, absolutely. I see that. I see that all the time in the science students here where they're giving some of their first big presentations and it's filled with jargon and really dense graphs that they don't even understand, but they think if they move through it quickly enough. Um, <laughs> so I teach, I teach the science communication course. I also teach a course on, on scientists giving science presentations. And I use a lot of the same principles in that, honestly. Like we keep it at a much more technical level, but at the same time, <laughs> as a scientist talking to another scientist, you sh still should be telling a really clear, simple story. And science is such a broad field. Biology is such a broad field. Animal physiology is such a broad field that I can't necessarily sit in a presentation for another animal physiologist and understand what the heck they did just because I have a PhD. Um, and that's, a, that's something that we need to work on at that level in this field as well. Like, yeah, people hide. People hide behind jargon, they hide behind technicalities, they hide behind graphs and statistics. Um, and usually people walk out of those presentations having no idea what they just watched. Um, if that present presenter is lucky, those people won't ask questions because they really didn't understand enough to even ask a question. Um, but that's not the way this should go. So absolutely, yeah, yeah. And that's the negative aspect you said as well, is not asking questions. That like, th to me, that's a terrible scenario you just described because those people will leave and not only will they not have learned anything, they very possibly could be turned off that field as a whole. You yeah. know, nobody likes to appear like they do not know what they're talking about. If you build up this barrier and people can't, they don't think they can ask a question, they're never going to ask a question. They've never passed that barrier. If somebody, even worse, if somebody asks a question and the question is dismissed or belittled, even worse again. And I've seen it on numerous occasions and it actually drives me insane 
Like that's bad. That's our problem as scientists and academics. We need to fix that across the board. That can never happen. We're taught a lot when you, when you do interpersonal interaction. So my background's in psychology. So I did my undergrad, my grad, uh, initial grad degree in, in psychology and counseling. And a lot of what you're taught and even coming into the social media stage, I never wanted to interact with people. So the fact that I'm doing podcasts and as a massive introvert, introvert is kind of fun and fascinating to me as well. But it's all these little cues that you get like, oh, that's a great question. Translation. I don't know what the hell you're talking about. That, that's asinine, right? Like all these kind of little juxtapositions, like you're saying. And there's such a fear. And this was, you know, my perception coming from an outside in. You know, I'm, I'm a little older than I think all of y'all. So <laughs> coming back into academia after a 14 plus year pause in, in the action, right? And like Colin mentioned, Ivory Tower and, you know, this kind of academia, academic elite, right? My father was a doctor, medical doctor, right? He's a very, very brilliant man, which I can appreciate about him, but I never wanted to be him, right? I never wanted to kind of do that. And there was always this kind of distancing of, oh, you did all that work and all that, you know, med school and everything like that. And you talk this certain way. Now he taught, he instilled some of those, you know, vocabulary type, you know, foundations, which is great. But as you were talking along, Carly, it I remember these certain times, even in business, where I was accused of using words as a way to weaponize or a way to kind of back up. Like this is, you know, you don't have to use those type of words in order to get your point across. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a, you know, it's a, it's a challenge for us. So coming into academia again and saying, hey, listen, I, I view you guys as elitist. You know, not everybody here is a Bill Nye, you know, that can kind of disseminate this information out in a way that is understandable. And even the challenge that we have here on this podcast is trying to make these very, very complex things. I mean, getting a PhD is scary. I mean, it's long. It's an arduous process. Like you're saying, you applied to programs wrong. Well, how did you know that they were wrong? <laughs> you know, like your path is your path and, and people coming around and we're on PhD chat. Obviously we, we encountered you through Twitter, right? Yay mediums. Right. Um, but kind of going through these things and understanding that people understanding what you do does not dilute the value of your work it does it actually increases the value because the more people that understand i mean wars have been fought over less right you have the train the western european mindset when gutenberg started being able to take what was only spoken in churches right and turn it into the lingua franca and change the nation the, the nature of how people received information it no it no longer became this elitist monks and you know you know over a candle writing stuff down it became Hey, I, I got that down at the corner and I can start to understand these things, these kind of educational revolutions. And even through 2020, the forcing function of remote education is now saying it doesn't matter where you are. You don't have to be in these halls. You don't have to be sitting there. God forbid you pay 50,000 plus to Harvard in order to learn something. And we're still going to charge you for living in your own home. If you get to pay that much, but you don't have to have that same experience. You can now go through it. It should become more accessible. It should become more reasonable to understand these things and, and get, get in the door there. So it's trying to tie all everything you guys have said together, but that's, that's been a true living experience, you know, for a lot of us. So. I actually had this like cool experience just yesterday that I'm still processing, but uh, we just started classes a week ago and I'm meeting with my non-majors my non-major um, courses. And yesterday it came up like why they chose to take the course. And um, somebody said, I heard this course wasn't very hard. And 
my first little, you know, thing was, oh, <laughs> okay. You know, that's where my brain went because nobody wants to be told their course isn't hard. And then I thought about why I even felt that way. And I decided that that was great that people were coming out of my biology course thinking it wasn't hard because my goal is for them to think science is accessible and to think that they too can participate in the scientific process and they can understand these concepts that have been made out to be incredibly difficult to understand. So I'm going to decide that that's great that students are coming out of my course thinking that wasn't hard and that that I'm meeting my objective then for students to walk away feeling more comfortable in the sciences. I would agree. Really Best success metric ever. <laughs> yeah. I've actually experienced that myself uh, open, open uh, in, in one of the universities that, that I teach and we do um, design thinking and they come in for a week and they go through the process and again, like that, and, and I hadn't thought about it the way you put it in terms of maybe it's that, you know, it, it's doing its job and it actually, it shouldn't be hard, really. Um, and the, the, again, it's the same thing, you know, oh, we do the course because, you know, we feel it's an easy way to get some credits for whatever it is. Um, but at the same time, they come in and they meet a host company. Uh, for example, it might be Revolut or another company like something like that and they identify a problem, they go through a complete week of each stage of it, having to work in teams, having to do all the things that usually people hate and the things that they don't enjoy, usually enjoy, and then come out the far end of it uh, having, having succeeded and will say, yeah, actually, that was, that was, that was pretty good. And actually, the, maybe the content's not easy, but, uh, or is easy, but um, sometimes they have a big fear about the other interactions and the pieces around it and all of those elements. And I think if you can make those easy for them as well then i mean you're onto a winner so clearly you're doing a, a really good job on that and um, we're really interested to kind of share back and forth after this i would like to people. take your class if possible <laughs> Thank let's, you. let's do it let's all take carly's course next year that's the that's the plan <laughs> <laughs> well we're actually coming up on time here and i know uh, we got some previous commitments and you know hey school school's in session right so i i think we can cheekily call this from squids to so socializing science right i think that's a listen i am figuring out the title ahead of time this way. That's, that's why you guys pay me oh, wait you don't um in any case <laughs> carly it was wonderful to have you on here and, and get a, a real sense for your journey and and how to kind of well democratize science i think is a better way of putting it. and you know really kind of bring that message to you to the folks that students that are eager to learn and just don't know it yet, right? Or the folks that are going to be doing this for their lifetime and need a better way of explaining it to people. And, you know, I think Colin has said in the past, if he can explain things to his mom or his grand, as the case may be, he's doing a really good job. And I agree, I can't, I still don't know what to tell my mom I'm doing. So there you go. But we appreciate your time today. We look forward to interacting with you on Twitter and other social media outlets. And yeah, I think uh, there's an audit in all of our futures for for your for your biology class if time <laughs> permits in this grand scheme of things so from all of us to you thank you for your time and we look forward to having more conversations in the future sounds great thanks so much for having me <laughs> thank you.